So this week, as I was thinking about where to go with the sermon series, the five weeks we have leading up to Christmas, all roads lead to Bethlehem, and I was thinking, which Old Testament stories should we read? I was, I was just doing some research, and I googled, what, what are the most popular Bible stories? And I happened to come across this children's ministry website entitled, The Top Ten Bible Stories That We Should Teach to Our Children. Now, this particular website had a list that you would expect to find. Noah and the Ark, David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah and the big fish, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the rest, the other five, would be all stories that you would expect as well. In fact, if you or I were to come up with a list of stories that we should teach children, I would guess that our list would look very similar to this children's ministry website. So it wasn't the list that got my attention. It was the description of these stories that got my attention. Consider this opening line from the website's commentary on the story of Daniel in the lion's den. This is what they say about Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, this is in quotes here, Daniel refused to succumb to a serious amount of peer pressure. It is always good to show kids heroic young people who refuse to go with the crowd, especially when the crowd is bowing down to other gods and disgusting our God. That's the point of Daniel in the Lions, and that's why we should teach it, according to this website. Noah in the Ark, the story that we're looking at today, this is what the website says. Teachers love the Ark because it shows Noah having the courage to go against the crowd. Now, to be fair, both of these are taken out of the context of a larger paragraph, but I think they fairly accurately represent what this website was purporting was the main purpose of these stories. In fact, it continues on with nearly every story. The purpose of Jonah and the Big Fish, according to this website, is that we shouldn't be, I think in their words officially, scaredy cats to tell people about God. Or the point of David and Goliath is that we should be willing to stand up to bullies. Well, on and on the website goes. And I suppose at one level, that's not surprising at all. It's not surprising at all because for most of us, this is how we were taught to think about the stories in the Bible, especially the stories of the Old Testament. I went to Sunday school and church nearly every Sunday of my growing up years. The church I went to, we had both the worship service for an hour and then Sunday school, or I can't remember which order they went. I think maybe Sunday school first and then church. And I have to admit, I don't remember many Sunday school lessons, but the Sunday school lessons I do remember were very similar in, in, in flavor to what I just described from this children's ministry website. For the most part, they were very moralistic in nature. I was taught from an early age that the Bible is primarily a set of moral lessons. And I doubt that my experience is unique. In fact, for most of us in here, that's how we're taught to think about the Bible, that it's a set of moral lessons, whether it's from children's videos like Veggie Tales or whether it's from most children's storybook Bibles or maybe even most Sunday school lessons that we heard growing up. Generally speaking, we are taught that the Bible, especially the stories of the Old Testament, are a collection of tales about morality. But hear me, I'm convinced of this, that the Bible is not just an advanced set, a spiritual set of Aesop's fables. This is not meant to be some sort of advanced morality tale. Instead, the Bible is meant to be read as one story with one message about one person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Now that said, it would be a mistake to say that there's no moral lessons to gain from the Bible. In fact, even for the story that we're going to read today, if we simply dismissed all of the moral elements of Noah and the Ark, that would be a mistake as well. But in the end, we must not forget that the Bible is ultimately telling one story. And that story is about how God is redeeming his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we read the Bible outside of that storyline, when we make it just about morals and we forget that the Bible is about Jesus, then we are missing the point of the story. Which is why we're actually doing this series that we're doing over the course of the next five weeks leading up to Christmas, to show that Jesus becoming man was not an isolated or random event. 
but rather it's always been the plan. It has always been the plan, and all of Scripture testifies to this truth. In fact, Jesus says as much in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus, and he's traveling with two men, and in verses 25 through 27, he says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's the money line. This is verse 27 of Luke chapter 24. Jesus, this is in reference to Jesus talking. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus points to the Old Testament, Moses and all the prophets, and then he interprets to these men all of the things in the Old Testament that are testifying about him. And so this idea that all of scripture is about Jesus, I don't think this is something that I'm making up. Obviously, this is something that Jesus believed to be true, that every scripture Every scripture is telling his name. We have a great children's storybook Bible at home, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And on the front cover it says this, every page is whispering his name. When we read the book of Ruth, we said that the shadow of Christ looms large in the book of Ruth. And it's true, every page is whispering his name. And the shadow of Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. And for that matter, every page of the New Testament. My hope over the next five weeks is that as we study some of these familiar stories, that we would begin to see how these stories fit into the overall storyline of Scripture. That we too would begin to read the Bible and understand that it is indeed whispering one name. And that name is not Noah, and it's not Moses, and it's not Abraham, and it's not Ruth, and it's not Esther. It is the name of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start today by studying a story that probably almost every person in here is familiar with. The story of Noah and the ark. Chances are that even if you know almost nothing about the Bible, you know something about this story. You've probably at the very least heard about the flood and this man building a big boat and all the animals coming onto the ark. And I think that most of us are at least vaguely familiar with those details. And the truth is, when we think of Noah and the ark, for most of us, what we have a picture of is the man who has his head out the window of the ark, smiling, almost waving to the crowd, and a whole bunch of happy animals with him as well. In fact, um, I, I brought a toy with me today that I think captures this well. So this is, this is Noah and the ark that we have at our house. And um, you may not be able to see it real well, but this is, this is pretty typical. On the back side here, you have all the animals, and they can easily peek their head out. And I think if you were to look close, you'd see that they are truly smiling. They are truly enjoying this. Uh, And Noah, he's just a happy old man. This camel is indeed smiling. This is what we think of when we think of Noah and the ark. We think of smiling, happy animals and a happy old man just enjoying the ride. In fact, one of the animals, I think the turtle is riding on the back of the elephant. It's like this great giant. We're all just getting along. We just love each other. That's what we think of when we think of Noah and the ark. But as we read this story this afternoon, I think that what we'll discover is that this story has almost nothing. In fact, it has nothing to do with cute little animals. And it has everything to do with the judgment and the mercy of God. And ultimately, the story of Noah and the ark is not meant to create in us a greater affection for smiling camels. But rather, instead, it's meant to point us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the challenges we face with this story is that it discovers an immense amount of Scripture, almost four chapters in the book of Genesis. And although uh, it would be great for us to read it in its entirety, we're just going to read excerpts of the story. Now, uh, I want you to know it's always hard to pick out which, which excerpts do you pick. I tried to pick the ones I feel like will help us to get the biggest sense of the story, but I'm not skipping intentionally anything to hide anything. 
Here's the great thing about teaching the Bible. You know where I'm getting my source material. So you can go and read this week, and you can read this story. In fact, I would encourage you, go read Genesis 6 through 9. I'm not trying to hide anything in the story here. I'm just trying to pick this, the parts of the story that will help us to advance it along. But again, I would encourage you throughout this week, go ahead and read Genesis 6 through 9. But we're going to start in Genesis 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. All right, again, let me remind you, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. I think what we'll see here as we start and as we go through all these different sections is there are two prevailing themes, the judgment and the mercy of God, starting in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold... I will destroy them with the earth. All right, so let's pause there for a second. Genesis 6 is an obvious reminder to us of the sinfulness of man. It becomes quickly apparent to us in this passage that the flood is not some sort of giant science experiment. And that the flood is not just God randomly deciding to demonstrate his power. The flood is a response to the wickedness and the sinfulness of man. Look at the way that mankind is described in these verses. In verse 5, they are described as having every intention of the thoughts of their hearts, only evil continually. In verse 12, flesh has corrupted the earth. Verse 13, the earth is filled with violence through them, through men. It goes back to Genesis 3. It goes back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the forbidden fruit. And from that point forward, every person that has been born has been born with a sinful nature. And what we need to understand is that while the flood in some ways served as a reset of creation, in fact, the language is remarkably similar to creation, while it serves as a reset of sorts, it does not eliminate the fact or it does not wipe out our sinful nature. In fact, the two stories immediately after Noah and the ark, the two stories immediately after emphasize that the sinful nature of man still exists. In Genesis 9, right after Noah and the ark, the first thing we see is a picture of Noah in a state of drunkenness and nakedness, obviously sinning. Even though Noah is lifted up as this man of righteousness, the story right after this reminds us that Noah was not perfect either. And then in Genesis 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, where men are making this name for themselves rather than honoring their creator. And so while we'll see at the end of this story that God promises never again to send a flood, that does not mean... It does not mean that the sinfulness used to describe the people in Genesis 6 has disappeared. In fact, the clear testimony of Scripture is that we are all sinful. In fact, even from Genesis 6 on, the clear testimony of Scripture is that the sin that characterized the generation of Noah characterizes each one of us as well. Psalm 14 says this, No one does good, not even one. Psalm 51 says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all else. Romans 3 says no one seeks for God. Romans 3 later on says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, the reality is that we generally like to think of ourselves as good people. 
And I would guess that if we were to compare the people in this room to, to the rest of society, I would guess that generally speaking, we are pretty moral people. But the problem is that other people are not the standard God is. In Matthew 5.48, we're told, be perfect as I am perfect. God is talking. He says, be perfect as I am perfect. And clearly, none of us are even close to that standard. All of us, on a regular and daily basis, choose to rebel against the living God. We choose to live our own way rather than living in a way to please Him. We must not think that somehow our sinfulness and our rebellion is in any way less significant than the rebellion of Noah's generation. Listen, we may manifest our sin in different ways. I'm not saying that our sin looks exactly the same as the sin of Noah's generation. But we cannot think that the fundamental issue has changed. The fundamental issue is still the same, that we are choosing to live our own way rather than choosing to live in a way that honors God. And listen, the flood is a clear reminder to us that God must judge sin. He must judge sin. In fact, look ahead for just a minute to Genesis 7. To Genesis 7. Look at the end result here. The clear and unequivocal testimony of the story is that God judges sin. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and arose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Listen, perhaps it's because we were going to name our first son Noah. Maybe it made us more aware of this, but when we first found out that Tanya was pregnant and we started looking for items to decorate our nursery, I noticed that uh, whether we went to a website or whether we went to a store, in most places, you could almost always find a place where you could decorate a a baby's nursery with a Noah in the Ark theme. And and listen, for reasons why I articulated with the toy that I showed, I totally get that, right? You have these cute, smiley animals. They're usually a rainbow, and Noah looks really happy. I totally get why that is a theme for nurseries. And before I say what I'm going to say, let me preface and say this. If you've had that theme, or if you have that theme currently, it's quite all right. I think that's fantastic. Listen, we have this toy that I just showed you at home, and we don't put it in a special toy hall of shame, okay? We don't, we don't put it somewhere where our kids can't play with it in the hall of misleading toys, all right? So I just want you to know that if you have that theme, it's totally okay, and I'm not saying you should go home and you should change it or anything like that, but I will say this. I've noticed that I've yet to see a nursery decorated with a Noah in the Ark theme that in addition to the smiling animals also has dead bodies right beside the Ark. Never seen that. And yet, it is an inescapable fact of this story. Now listen, we're uncomfortable with it, right? We don't even like talking about this aspect of the story. We would much rather focus on the smiling animals. But you cannot get away from the fact that people die in this story. You cannot read this without being reminded that countless people were killed because of their sin. And we may be uncomfortable with that, but it doesn't make it any less true. And it's a clear reminder to us that God must judge sin. It is part of his character that he cannot let sin go unresolved. In order to be good, he must also be just. And if he is infinite, there is an infinite punishment that must be paid for sin. 
It may seem that he's overlooking sin for a time and praise God that he does or else we would have all been destroyed. But rest assured, while he may overlook sin for a time, he will punish sin. And that makes us uncomfortable. In fact, it even makes me uncomfortable. It's not like I woke up this morning rubbing my hands together thinking I get to talk about the judgment of God today. No, this is hard. This is uncomfortable. And oftentimes we backpedal away from it, right? We think, well, this is kind of uncomfortable. Let's just kind of back away from it. And so oftentimes we hear Christians say things like this. Well, the God of the Old Testament, he was much more wrathful than the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is loving. But here's the problem. Number one, that's not true. And number two, it's not helpful. The reality is, the reality is you cannot make sense of the Christmas story, Jesus becoming man. You cannot make sense of the Easter story, Jesus dying on the cross, unless you first understand that God must judge sin. Why did Jesus have to become man? Why would he die on the cross unless there was a punishment for sin to be paid? The fact is that while it's true there may be less instances of God's immediate judgment of sin in the New Testament, for example, there's less times where the earth opens up and swallows people or less times where fire consumes people or stories like that that we see in the Old Testament. But it's still there in the New Testament. It's there in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But most notably, it's there on the cross. The reason why you don't see the wrath of God as much in the New Testament is because primarily it is poured out on his son. The wrath of God on sin in the New Testament is seen clearly and most unequivocally when it's directed at his son, Jesus Christ. And hear me, when we downplay the reality of God judging sin, it may seem like we're highlighting the love of God. In fact, oftentimes we think, well, let's just not talk about the judgment of God and instead highlight his love. I would argue that if we never talk about the judgment of God, we are not highlighting the love of God. Instead, we are diminishing it. Because it's only when you understand that God must judge sin it's only then when you can begin to see the great love of God and you can see the love of God that he would send his son to take the punishment for us. And I would argue that's one of the great reasons or one of the great mistakes we make in reading Old Testament stories and never talking about the justice and wrath of God. Because then when we're explaining this to our kids, for example, they never understand why Jesus had to go to the cross. It's only when you make sense of God's righteousness and his justice and his justice and his holiness, and his righteousness, it's only then that the cross makes sense. If we never talk about his justice, if we never talk about his righteousness, if we never talk about his judgment of sin, then the cross will just be a nice thing to us. It won't seem like a necessity. It's the judgment of God and the fact that in order to be good, he must punish sin. It's that that makes the cross so beautiful. When we come to understand the necessity of God judging sin, after all, how could he not judge sin? He's the creator, and we've rebelled against him on a daily and regular basis. When we understand that, then we can begin to truly see the love of God. And then we can truly begin to understand the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. But we won't understand it. We won't understand that hope until we see the necessity of God's justice being carried out on sin. And in that way, the flood of Genesis 6 through 9 and the dead bodies in Genesis 7 serve as a warning to us. They serve as a warning to us. In fact, that's the argument that the New Testament makes. You can turn to Matthew 24 for just a second. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 24. One of the reasons I feel entirely confident tracing the story of knowing the ark to Jesus is because the New Testament makes the same argument. Matthew chapter 24. 
Verse 36. Verse 36 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So no doubt there were many outside the ark who questioned whether God was really going to send a flood of judgment. And no doubt there are many, maybe even some here today, who question whether God really will judge sin. Let's be honest. One of the worst words that you can use in our culture is judge. If you really want to get, riled, if you want to get someone riled up, just call them a judgmental person. Right? It's to say that God must judge sin, it seems like one of the worst things that we could say. And yet, here it is. And I have no doubt that some are doubting that that will be true, that God really will judge sin. But make no mistake about it, Matthew 24 reminds us, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Make no mistake, the judgment of God is coming. And we ought to live today in light of that reality. For some, for some that means trusting in Christ. There's some here today who do not know Christ. I'm pleading with you in light of the fact that God will judge sin to turn to Christ. Sometimes we speak of Christianity or becoming a Christian as if that would be just a nice decision to make your life qualitatively better. In an eternal sense, I think that's true, but there's so much more at stake than just that. The reality is that God must judge sin, and I'm pleading with you today if you are not a Christian. This is a reality that you must face that God will judge sin. But if you look to Christ, you can have the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not sharing this with you to scare you into believing Christ. I'm just sharing this with you as a friend. Believing that this is true. Saying that Christ is the only hope we have. And I desperately do not want you to have to face the judgment of God. I want Christ to take the punishment on your behalf. And so I'm pleading with you. If you're a non-believer today, I consider you my friend and I'm asking you, please turn to Christ. It's the only hope we have. For those who are Christians, I would ask you this. How much urgency should we have? I think one of the reasons why we've lost the urgency of the gospel message is because we've stopped emphasizing the justice and the wrath of God. And by the way, the wrath of God is completely righteous in every way. One of the reasons we've lost the urgency is because we've forgotten that one day God will judge sin. And so if you're a believer today, I'm just asking you, let's consider this message and let's be more urgent about it. Let's be more urgent to tell people because we know the only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Let's be more urgent. Let's be humble, but let's be urgent in sharing this message with our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers. Some Thanksgiving's coming up, and I'm sure that you will have a lot of people gathered around the table somewhere. And perhaps, maybe, God has in there some conversation for you to have someone with someone where you are able to share the good news of Christ. Listen, there's too much at stake. The task is urgent. Because the story of the flood reminds us that God will judge sin. And in that way, knowing the ark is not a cute little story about animals. It's a painful reminder of the judgment and the wrath of God. But that said, listen, it's also a reminder of the grace and mercy of God. That's the other side of the equation. If we only talk about the justice and wrath of God, then we are completely missing the point as well. 
Because it's not just all these people being judged for their sin. There's also this great story of grace and mercy too. There's this story of grace and mercy and how God treats Noah and his family. Go back in Genesis 6, starting in verse 9. I'm just going to read one verse in verse 9, and then we're going to skip ahead to verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Then verse 14. This is God telling Noah what to do. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So let's pause again. Now listen, Noah is not a perfect man. That much is obvious as the story goes on. But it is also obvious that Noah in faith believed God. This text is quick to remind us that Noah obeyed God. Chapter 6, verse 22, 7, verse 5, both remind us that Noah did exactly what God told him to do. And while we don't want to make Noah the hero of this story because he's not, God is, it would also be a mistake to skip over the amazing nature of his faith. And while this story is not ultimately about morality, there are still some great moral lessons here too. Listen, Noah's obedience could not have been easy. It must have taken a staggering amount of time and money to build the ark. It must have taken years to gather all of the lumber that would be necessary and to fit all the pieces together. And it must have taken an extraordinary cost to build this, and not only that, to provide the food for all the animals. And it seems to be of little doubt that Noah must have been the object of great ridicule amongst his neighbors and countrymen. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been Noah's neighbor? It'd be like having a neighbor next door who is building a spaceship in their backyard for some unknown event. You would think that neighbor is crazy. And I have no doubt that most thought that Noah was absolutely off his rocker. They must have thought that he was crazy in every way. And yet through it all, Through the difficulty, through the expense, through the ridicule, Noah obeyed God. He trusted God. And while Noah is not the focal point here, and while he certainly is the beneficiary of grace, in the end, the reason why Noah was in the ark was because of the grace of God. It wasn't because of the fact that Noah was sinless. In faith, he trusted God, and God in his mercy saved Noah. While all that's true, there's still something for us to admire in Noah's faith here. His obedience and his trust in God must have been difficult and it must have been lonely. 
And listen, I want you to know this. If you are going to follow Christ at times, for you, it will be lonely and difficult also. If you decide that following Christ is going to be the number one passion of your life, then that might mean eventually that you will have to sacrifice things. You might sacrifice career advancement. You might sacrifice making more money or you might sacrifice a million other things along the way. And there might be people who are not happy with it. In fact, maybe some of your biggest objectors will come from your own family. They'll be saying things like, how could you not make more money? How could you not advance further in your career? They won't understand. It will be lonely and difficult. If you speak about Christ regularly, you might be seen as ignorant or arrogant or just plain rude. People won't get it. And if you live for eternity and you make the case that you are going to store up treasure in heaven and not on earth, people are are going to think that you are just strange and weird. It might be lonely and difficult to follow Christ. But listen, we can learn something from Noah's example here. That we are able to live that way because we trust God. Noah trusted God, and in God's mercy, he saved Noah. But God's mercy is not just seen towards Noah. It's also seen in a much bigger sense in this story. Look to chapter 8, verse 1. And so remember, at the very end of chapter 7, we're reminded of the cataclysmic effects of the flood. And then in 8, verse 1, we read this. But God remembered Noah... And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Skip ahead to ver- or chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is a complete side note. If you are discouraged by the cold today, chapter 9 verse 22 reminds you, that's, or 8 verse 22 reminds you, that's actually a sign of God's faithfulness, right? The fact that there's summer and winter, that's a sign that God is not going to destroy us. So take heart as you head outside and your face freezes off. God is not going to destroy us with the flood again. But then in 9, verse 18, he continues here. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, as it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God remembered Noah, and he established his covenant with Noah. It's a reminder to us that while it is true that God judges sin, and while he punishes wickedness, he also delivers his people. In fact, in 1 Peter, this is the exact argument that is made. That God saved eight people through the ark, but ultimately the ark is pointing us to a greater salvation. A salvation that comes through dying with Christ and being raised with him to new life by trusting in Christ and repenting of our sins. The message of Noah reminds us and points us to the cross. The message of the ark reminds us that God punishes sin and yet he provides a way for his people to be saved at the same time. In fact, one more New Testament passage I want you to look at. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter is towards the end of the Bible. 
you go back from Revelation past Jude and all three of the Johns, and you find 2 Peter chapter 2. Again, one of the reasons I'm making this argument that the ark is meant to point us to Christ is because this is the argument the New Testament makes. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Listen, in his grace, God saved Noah and his family by providing an ark. And in his grace, God has provided his son so that we too could be saved from the flood of God's wrath that is coming. In the same way that Noah and his family were saved by being in the ark, we too can be saved by being in Christ. Every person alive at the time of Noah, Noah included, deserved to be punished by the flood. And yet God in his mercy provided an ark so that Noah could be saved. And every person now, including every person in this room, deserves the wrath of God. And yet God in his mercy provided a way that we too could be saved. It's his son Jesus Christ. Listen, the flood demonstrates both the necessity of God's judgment of sin and his grace in providing a way for people to be saved. The cross does the same thing, except on a much larger scale. It reminds us that God must punish sin, and yet he loves us so much that he would send his son to die for us. Listen, no one in his family may have been saved by the ark, but their salvation points to a much greater salvation. It points us to Christ. The one who is always blameless, always righteous, and always walked with God. Listen, I know that there is a lot about the story of Noah and the ark that can distract us from the main point. It would be very easy for us to get distracted by the logistical details of the ark. How did all the animals fit into the ark? Which animals exactly were on the ark? How did Noah take care of all those animals for over a year? How did that happen? And listen, those are important questions to ask. I think there's places you can go to find those answers, but it's obvious that those are not the types of questions that the author of Genesis was interested in answering here. That's not the focus. Not to say there aren't hints, that there's not ways that we can't answer those questions, but that's not the focus here. It would be easy for us to get distracted by that, though. Or it would be easy for us to get distracted by the theatrical quality of the story. Listen, there's a reason why Hollywood is coming out with a movie about this story. You probably even saw the previews for it this week. It remains to be seen how biblically faithful that movie will be. I have my guesses, but I guess we'll find out here in a few months, right? But it, it, there's a reason why they make movies about this, because this is an amazing story. A flood, a giant boat, an ark, Noah. It, it makes sense why people make a movie of this. But that's not the focus of the text either. The amazing theatrical quality. We could get caught up in the morality of this text. We could say, oh yeah, let's be like Noah. Let's go against the crowd. And certainly there's a lesson to be learned in that, but that too is not the focus. No, the focus in this passage is on the justice and the mercy of God. He will punish sin, and yet in his grace, he provides a way for people to be saved. We see that in the story of Noah and the ark, and we see the same thing at the cross of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, God's judgment is coming again. 
And this time it will make the flood seem small in comparison. The question is, will you run to the one who can save you? Not the ark, but Jesus Christ. If you've already trusted him, will you worship him? Will you fall down in thankfulness for the fact that he has rescued you from the wrath that you so richly deserved? Listen, we have a lot to be thankful for as we're only a few days away from Thanksgiving. I'm sure that all of us could think of hundreds of things that we are thankful for, but there is nothing to be more thankful for than the fact that God in his grace provided a way for us to be rescued from the impending wrath of God. And he did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. That ultimately is what Noah and the ark is about. And I think we can all agree, in the end, that is a much better story than a smiling camel and a happy old man. God rescuing his people by sending his son. That is worthy of praise. In fact, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this old story that we're probably all familiar with in some ways, but maybe we've lost sight of why it's so important. And over the years, no doubt, we've, we've come to focus on many things. But in the end, we know that this story is ultimately about you, and it's about your justice, and it's about your mercy. And it's pointing us ahead to your son, Jesus Christ, in much the same way that you saved Noah and his family through the ark. If we trust in Jesus Christ, we too can be saved. And Father, we want to celebrate that today. We want to be reminded of that. Even as we take the Lord's Supper here, we want to be reminded that it's your justice and your mercy that we see so clearly at the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.